So tonight, I want us to think about the theme of all things. We began Romans, and I talked about this at the beginning of our study with Romans 11.36. It says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I think that verse sums up the Bible, the whole universe, and everything in our lives, to be honest. God is the beginning the middle, and the end of all things. Nothing exists without his creating it. Nothing stays in being without his sustaining word. Everything has its reason for existing from him. Therefore, nothing can be understood apart from him, and all understandings of all the things that leave him out are superficial understandings since they leave out the most important reality in the universe. We scarcely begin to feel today how God-ignoring we have become, because it's the very air that we breathe. And this, what I pray is happening in your soul as you study Romans, is that you're beginning to breathe a different air. And so I want us to realize that everything has to be viewed through the lens of From him, through him, and to him are all things. And we're going to see this in more detail as we look at two of the most sweeping promises in all of Scripture. These promises and the great foundation that undergirds them come right after Paul has discussed suffering and the glory that does not even compare to the suffering. Or I should say the suffering doesn't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in us and to us. We saw that last week. Now, Paul knows this life is full of difficulty, and difficulty, what does it do for us? I say difficulty, suffering, whatever you want to call it, trials, they can discourage us and make us doubt God's love for us, and they can even make us doubt our love for him. So this whole chapter is so glorious because it is meant to give us assurance in God himself, not your circumstance, all those things that come that we look to. They give us, this chapter gives us assurance and hope as we look at God himself and what he's done. Now, I'm going to read the passage, the whole passage, and I want you to note, and I'm going to try to emphasize it, every time we see God doing something. So I'm going to start uh, in verse 31. We're going to go through uh, 34. No, we're going to start in 28 and go through 34. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Did you notice 
how this entire passage is about God and his work, that should be an encouragement to you. If you've ever doubted as to whether God is for you, these verses should, verses should put that completely at rest. Romans 8:28 is one of the most famous, most quoted verses in the Bible. Unbelievers quote this verse, only they apply it incorrectly. But for believers, this is true. And I want to read you what one writer said, and I loved this. He said, if you live inside the promise of verse 28... Your life is more stable than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over inside of Romans 8:28. But outside of this verse is all confusion, anxiety, fear, and uncertainty. Inside this verse is all-encompassing grace for today, for the future, and whatever that brings. But outside of this verse are the straw houses of drugs, alcohol, numbing TV, our phones, and dozens of futile diversions. Outside this verse are the fragile walls of investment strategies, insurance coverage, trivial retirement plans, deadbolt locks, security systems, and a thousand substitutes for the security that's found in this verse. I just thought that was such a great word for how we live our lives and how we need to reorient to what is true security. When God's people really but live by the promise of verse 28, they are the freest, the strongest, the most generous people in the world. So what do we learn from this verse? Let's point out a few things. We know, it starts with we know. This promise is true, and it's about knowing the truth. It's not about feeling it. Ladies, can I get an Amen. One thing that I love that Nancy Lee DeMoss says is I have to counsel my heart according to truth. In other words, sometimes we can feel a certain way that's not based on truth. And when you know the truth, you counsel your heart or your emotions until, speak the truth to yourself until it lines up with truth. And I think that that's important when he says we know this. God works. It's his work, and he's the one that's causing it. All things the good things, the bad things, your successes, your failures, there is no qualification on the things. It's all things. So um, that tells us that we don't have to be limited, but it says all things for good. And what is good? How do we define good? That's very important. I think I asked that question on your homework, define good. And what is the good that he's talking about here? It's in verse 29, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That is the good that God is after. And what could be better than that, ladies, to be conformed to the image of Christ? When we're conformed to the image of Christ, not only does it give us glory, but we're a reflection, and it's for God's glory. The good that we often think of is our comfort and our ease. That's where we fall and we fail and we get disappointed and we get discouraged. So we have to have a true picture of what that means. So there's no limit, so I want to give you your first truth. Nothing can defeat God's plan for you. Nothing can defeat God's plan for you. Good, bad, ugly. Nothing can defeat God's plan for you. And how we define good 
speaks to what we truly love. Do we truly love God and Christ to the point that being conformed to his image is how we define good and what we long for? Or do we define good of what we want, what's going to be comfortable, what seems right to us? A lot of times that's that battle between the spirit and the flesh. And so the beauty of God's word and the sweeping promise is that we use it correctly and we see it truly. Um, But there is a qualification for this verse. Now, there's no qualification on all things. Once again, I want us to remember, it's all things tonight. All things come from God. He works all things for good. But the qualification is for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All right? And so how do these relate? Called, that we're going to see in a minute in verse 30 again, is more than a general call. More than the call that a pastor gives at the end of a sermon, more than the call that we give when we share the gospel. This call is what some define as, and this is, this is how I'm going to teach it. There are other people that view this differently, so let me give that caveat. But I'm going to teach it to the best way that I understand it. Okay, But know that there is a lo- there's a lot of different views on this. But this is, I can't bring them all, so this is what I'm bringing the best I understand. This is an effectual call, is what some people call it, effectual call. And it would be like if we went outside Lazarus' tomb and we said, Lazarus, come out here, what would happen? Nothing. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, what happened? The dead came to life and he came. That was a call that was effectual. That is an illustration of the type of call when it says those God has called. Okay? Now, the result or the evidence that we have been called by God is that we love him. Because if you remember back in Romans 3.10, we saw there's no one righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God. All right? If they're not even seeking God, they obviously don't love him. So we know that apart from God's work, loving him is not going to be a natural thing. And so to love God is evidence that he's done a work in you. Okay, Um, so if this massive promise is all things and it's for those that love God, we have that here in Romans, but we also have that example in the Old Testament. There's several, but I'm going to bring out one. Okay, Um, you know the story. And and by the way, um, it's the story of Joseph. Okay, we think of God using all things. So. Most of you know the story of Joseph. He was sold by his brothers into slavery, taken to Egypt. You know, he he rose up in Potiphar's house, falsely accused. I mean, he was just totally mistreated. And it was thing after thing, like he would get some elevation. And then eventually he did get elevated and made a way for Egypt to store the grain and, you know, with the famine in the land and the whole thing. His brothers that had sold him came back and saw him. And so it looks like it, like it was just completely out of control. Here's, here's this person that's doing everything right, and everything bad happens. And the big famous verse that he says to his brothers at the end is, you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Like, we get that. So God, God uses even the mistreatment, the bad plans, the bad attitudes for his purpose. How does he do that? I don't know. He's God. But we see that. But it's also interesting 
that it wasn't just that things were out of control and that God comes in and rescues. Because I want to give you two verses. Um, let's see. The first one um, is in Genesis 45, 7. Joseph said, God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. So God sent him. It wasn't just the brothers did it. God sent him. And then in Psalm 105, 16 and 17, it's given a recount of, uh, of what God has done. It says, when, when, God, when God summoned a famine, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, sold as a slave. And then it was in Genesis 50, 20, when he says, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. And so it's important that we know these stories and we see that while it looks from man's point of view that people are doing this, and they are, behind the scenes, God is working it. And, and the mystery of how those come together, I can't tell you in nice, neat little packages, but we see it. And there's such an assurance and a hope in that, okay? Um, God doesn't just respond to evil things. He uses them. So I have another truth for you. God's plans, purposes, and God plans, he purposes, and he works all things together for our good. God plans he purposes and he works all things together for our good. So I want to ask you, what in your life right now does it feel like it's good? Are you questioning God about why he's allowed it? And while you may never know the why, will you trust the one who does know the why? Will you trust the one that is before you that has done all of this with all power and lift your gaze from your circumstance to the one who not only is good but he is working it for your good even when you can't see it that's what the walk of faith is about and that's where we find our assurance so if this massive promise is accomplished by god and if it includes all things what is the basis for this promise Romans 8:28 one writer says holds within itself virtually every other promise that God has made to us. Romans 8:28 contains within itself virtually every other promise God has made to us. It's like a skyscraper. But for something to be a skyscraper, to build a skyscraper, you have to put the roots or the foundation very, very deep for it to stand. So we need to know what the supporting pillars are to this promise that undergird this unshakable promise. And that's what we're going to look at in 29 and 30. Okay? So when we get to 29, it says, for, and that could be since or because. That word can be any of those. Because. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And brothers, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we see all of these great, some people call it the, the, the golden chain anchored in heaven of what God has done for us. Foreknowledge predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. 
Each is something God does. The first two have to do with God's eternal counsel or past determinations, foreknowledge and predestination. The last two, justification and glorification, is what God has done in our lives and will do. But the middle term calling connects the two. They flow from eternity past to eternity future. So let's talk about these briefly. Some of them we've already talked about in Romans. Foreknowledge. Now, I want to talk about this for a second. Many think because it comes from the word for, which means before, and knowledge, knowing, it means that God looked down in history and saw those who would choose him. He foresaw their faith. Okay? A lot of people believe that. You may believe that. But in this context, I want to put out to you, because context is everything. In this context, it's all about what God does. Each term is about God doing. And the object of this foreknowledge is not the action of the people, the believing. It's the people themselves. For those, those, the people God foreknew. Not the faith in the people that God foreknew. You see the difference there? It's the people God foreknew. God, and my interpretation and my belief is that God fixes special attention on certain ones and brings them to salvation. He chooses and he loves them, okay? That means pretty much the same thing. Now, why, why do I think that? We see an example in the Old Testament with Amos, the use of this word knowing, Amos 3, 2. He's speaking to Israel the Hebrew word for knowing, yada, and, he, and God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, did God just look to all the families of the earth and just saw Israel and said, you're the only ones I knew? No. That word is sometimes translated, you only have I chosen. There's a special choosing with Israel, and we know that, okay? So we can't deny that. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I can make all this fit nice, neat little packages. Because whenever you're dealing with the mind of God, there's mysteries. But I'm just looking at some evidences and giving you this one view, okay? And you're, you're welcome to go study because there's plenty of people that have different views on this, okay? Here's your next truth. Salvation has its origin in the mind and eternal counsels of God. Salvation has its origin... In the mind or eternal counsels of God. Salvation has its origin in the mind or eternal counsels of God. And 1136 says what? For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things, ladies. All things. Next, we come to predestination which basically just means to determine a person's, a person's destiny beforehand. We already talked about calling as far as Lazarus and the effectual calling. But I want to read to you 1 Corinthians. You know, when we think about calling being more than just the general call that I would put out to someone to Christ or the preacher puts out, um, I want to read you uh, 1 Corinthians 23 and maybe 22 through 24. 1 Corinthians 1, excuse me, and I'm going to start in 22. Paul is saying, The Jews demand miraculous signs, and the Greeks look for wisdom. 
but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but, now note this, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So there's a difference. Lots of people heard about Christ, but they thought it was foolishness. But to those that God called, it was powerful. You see, that's where we get the idea of the effectual calling that is different from just the general call. Okay? So why does Paul, we've got uh, predestination and then calling. So why does Paul put calling before justification? Calling is when things determined beforehand pass into time. God is outside of time. He predict, you know, there's not past, present, and future with God. But to us, there is. So when his determinations pass into time, that is the calling. And so justification, we already talked about that, is right standing before God on the basis of what Jesus has done. So I'm not going to go into that. We've talked about that a lot, having that that right standing that is given to us because of Christ's righteousness. Then we get to glorified. That is in the past tense. Did you notice that it's in past tense? And that is a future. That is going to be the future. We talked about that a little bit before. When we get rid of this and we have our glorified body, we're set free from that, and, and we reflect Christ in a much deeper and more full way. We're made like Jesus. That's the final step in our salvation. But it's so certain that Paul talks about it in the past tense. Why can he do that? Because who does it, ladies? God. So there's no doubt that it's going to be accomplished. Okay? And so we have these great terms that are big terms, but we should be anchored in them, that are the foundation and the pillars that hold up the truth that if all of this is true and we are going to glorification because of what God has done, we can trust that all things are going to be for our good. Because remember, what is our good? To be conformed to the image of Christ, which is what? Our glorification. It's already done. They're the foundation, and that's how we can rest. We just have to be careful how we define good, ladies. We have to be careful because if it's ease and comfort... That's not what God is promising us, okay? That's not his goal. And so, in light of this stunning promise, look what Paul says in 31. What shall we say in response to this? Okay, like, he's, it's stunning. But then what's the application? Because remember, he's giving us this promise in the context of suffering. Because this life is going to be full of suffering and difficulty. What shall we say in response to this? If, or since, that word can be translated since, is since God is for us, who can be against us? All right, let me ask that question. Since God is for us, who can be against us? We've just seen the extent to which God is for us, ladies. We've just seen that. Everything that we just saw is the extent to which God is for us. So the question is, who can be against us? Well, the truth is, a lot of things and a lot of people, right? Y'all may have someone that popped in your head right now that is against you. And if they're not someone against you now, they will be against you or they will feel like they're against you, okay? But the implication is no one can be successfully against us. 
Okay, so the implication is no one can be against us. So we know that that's not true with the here and now. But the implication is no one can successfully or um, finally be against us. All right? Ultimately, you be, be against us. And I want you to remember that when you think about some of the people that are in power over you. Maybe your boss, maybe a measure of your spouse, a family member, our government, when you start getting stressed out about those things, who can be against us, ladies? We got to remember that and not get caught up in the here and now. And then 32 takes us to the next sweeping promise in this passage. He, that's God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he, God, not also, not also, along with him, Jesus graciously give us all things. All right, so here's our next sweeping promise. We saw that all things work together for good. How will not God give us all things, our next all things? Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's using logic. From the more difficult that God gave his son to the less difficult. So there's two parts. Uh, the foundation, he didn't spare his own son, but delivered, us, delivered him up for us all. I want to read you. Now remember, once again, who killed Christ? God did. Ultimately, ladies, I mean, we think the Jews, we think the Romans, we know our part. Ultimately, God did, okay? And that sounds crazy, but it's true. Because once again, when we look at the difficulties and how God uses it behind the scenes, God is accomplishing. So I'm going to read you a familiar passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 55, that speaks to this. Verses 5 and 6, Isaiah 55, 5 and 6. No, that's not right. What did I put the wrong one? Yes, I did, not Isaiah 55. Isaiah 50, is it three? Yes, yes, okay. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Okay, so that's our part that y'all answered. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that is not what I'm looking for. And I have no idea. Oh, here it is. 10, 10, 10, 10. I found it. <laughs> 53, 10. Go down to verse 10, Isaiah 53. And so it talks about he was cut off from the land of the living and so forth. But in verse 10, it says, yet. And so that's all our part and all that happened to him. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Do you see how God is behind it all, ladies? And if you ever want to know how God works good from horrible, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Every good thing that we have is because of what the horrible thing that happened at the cross. So whenever you look at your difficult circumstances and you wonder how or if God's going to do it, you just need to gaze at the cross. Okay, um, so I don't know how I got 55 on that. So in your next truth, 
and I, and I loved this. One writer said this, God did not spare his own son because it was the only way he could spare us. God did not spare his own son because it was the only way he could spare us. God did not spare his own son because it was the only way he could spare us. So if it's true that God didn't spare his own son, logic tells us that of course God will give us all things. They are much less than his son. All things that are for our good. Psalm 104:28 says, talking about God, when you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. And I love that picture. When God opens his hand, we're satisfied with good things. But remember how we define good, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Giving us all things is the easy part. I want you to think on that every time uh, that you're afraid of being denied something that might be good for you or that you think would be good for you. I want you to remember that, that God is going to, he gave his son, so will he not freely give you all things? It may look impossible to you, but nothing is impossible for God to accomplish if it's for your good. All right, and verse 32 tells us, verse 32 that we just read says, that will he not freely give us all things? It tells us that nothing will ever enter into your experience as God's child that by his sovereign grace will not be a benefit to you, even death. Even death, because ladies, it's a doorway for us. Nothing will ever enter your experience as God's child. That by his sovereign grace will not be a benefit to you, even death. Nothing will ever enter your experience as God's child that by his sovereign grace will not be a benefit to you, even death. And here's another way to say it, shorter way. God will turn the enemies of our joy into the servants of our good. God will turn the enemies of our joy into the servants of our good. God will turn the enemies of our joy into the servants of our good. So we just saw that, that God didn't spare his own son. We just saw the extent to which God has, giving, has been giving to or has given to us. So the question becomes, what should our response be? And, and I love the story in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Samuel 24, 24. And I won't know the whole story, but David just had this encounter uh, where the angel comes to him, and he's on the threshing floor of Arana, and he has has numbered the army, and so there's a plague, and he uh, or there's going to be judgment, and he gets to decide what's going to happen, and this whole scene, and he wants to offer worship at this place. As a matter of fact, it later became the place of the temple. And so Arana says, I'm just going to give you this land. He wants the land. He's, I'm going to give it to you. But you know what David said? 
I will, he said, I'll give, I'll give you the, the animal and the wood and everything to make your sacrifice. And David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. So I want to ask you, is this how you live your life? Now, in light of what we've just said, he who did not spare his own son, will he not along with him graciously give us all things? How do you live your life in regard to the things of God and what God wants? Your sacrifice of your time, your effort, the time in the word, serving, giving of your money. Examine your life in light of the fact that God didn't spare his son. What are you sparing and not giving for the kingdom is what I want to ask you. What are you not sparing? Or what are you sparing and holding back for yourself and using for yourself and not giving for the kingdom? It should cost us something because he's worthy of it. Note, it says, will he not freely give us all things? The gift of Christ shows us God's heart. It's also the interpreting fact of all God's dealings in our life. Only as we have a firm hold on Christ, the gift, can we face the darkness, perplexities that harass your mind as you look on human misery. Because, ladies, there's human misery in our own lives and around us. Compare the two, kit, the two gifts. Okay, here's the two gifts. Christ and all things. He is the gold. All things is the dust. Which do you want more? Which do you pray for the most? Christ, knowing him, loving him, being conformed, or the all things? What do you ask for the most? Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. Many trust Christ for salvation, and they trust their souls to him. But you know what they worry about? Their jobs, their health, their bills, their physical safety. All, they worry about the all things. And I loved this. Alexander McLaren said this. Is it because we do not truly trust him for the greater that we find it so hard to trust him for the less? Is it because we want the less more than we want the greater that we don't trust him and we fear and we worry? I think it's worth examining. He's given us all things. But more than that, he's given us his son. So think about your prayer life. Think about how you spend your time. And then we get to 33 and 34. Who is he that can, I mean, I mean, remember, the Romans were living under Nero. They were living under persecution. There was condemnation. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Okay. Oh, no, I forgot 33. Starts with, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. That's the first question. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. So our last two questions. Um, in the legal context, we are justified by the highest court. Now, remember, not only do we have people in this life that are condemning, but who is the one that's the accuser? Satan. All right? So he's always accusing us. The world and Satan are continually bringing charges against God's elect, and we're seeing it more and more in our country and our culture. 
but they amount to nothing. Because in the legal context, we are justified by the high court. God himself, um, through Jesus, has achieved our justification. And Jesus is at the right hand. So he is at the place of power and authority as our legal counsel, our advocate. And the Holy Spirit is on earth as our advocate pleading our petitions. We saw that before in Romans 8. So Jesus is in heaven, our advocate, pleading the blood, and there's no condemnation. We started that off at the beginning of this chapter. So this is the truth. The only ones who have the power to accuse or condemn us, God or his sons, are the ones who are there protecting us, ladies. The only ones that truly have power to condemn us are the ones protecting us, interceding and taking care of it. So Paul's whole design in this chapter is to deepen our sense of unshakable security in the face of horrible suffering. It is designed to help you suffer well. Now, you may not want to hear that, but if you're not experiencing suffering now or you haven't in the past, you will. To those who love God and are called, and let's do a recount and let this wash over you. I want you to see what Paul has just done. Verse 28 says, God will work all things for your good. Verse 30, your final glorification is secured. 31, since God is for you, no one can successfully be against you. 32, God gave his son, therefore he will give you everything you need. Verse 33, God is the one who justifies. Nobody can make a charge against you in the courtroom of heaven. 34, since Christ died and was raised as the right hand of God, he is interceding. No one can condemn you. The design of this passage, though, is not to add eternal security to a life devoted to comfort here on this earth. The design of this is to promise eternal security to free you from a life devoted to earthly security. You don't want, he doesn't want to add that to security and comfort. He wants to free you from a life devoted to security and comfort, to give you the courage to move out toward need. This passage is a call to go to a hard place or do a hard thing for Christ, to spend yourself for Christ in his kingdom, to do something radical in the eyes of the world as you fulfill God's call, and to follow Jesus no matter what the cost because he's worthy. And so we end where we begin and really, ladies, where we should live every single day of our life. Romans eleven thirty six, and I hope you will memorize that verse because it's going to carry us through the rest of Romans. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's what we should be doing, living for him, not for our own comfort. To him be the glory forever. That's our purpose. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us unshakable security in this world of suffering. But God, we ask that you would make us bold, that you would make us free from ourselves, from the things we run after, from the things that everything in our culture and even our own flesh cries out for, that we would go forward in boldness, that we would sacrifice God for you, you and your kingdom. You have given us your son, Lord, And we should offer our lives, Lord, as a sacrifice that should, should cost us in some way. Help us to be willing to be a sacrifice 
and, and offer sacrifices that cost us something, God, because you are so worthy of that. And in, in that sacrifice, in that act of worship, we will find our true joy in you and not in those lesser things of this world. Lord, set us free from it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.